So uh, it's my uh, great pleasure, pleasure to uh, introduce the next, next speaker, who's a colleague at Yale, Onyema Ogwagu. Onyema um, has joined the Yale faculty, uh, uh, and as you can see, he's incredibly knowledgeable and engaging and um, wonderful. And um, he's taken a particular interest now in pre-exposure pro prophylaxis and has uh, led a study at Yale um, that will answer some of the questions a little bit that were raised uh, about pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I'm going to introduce him. He's going to talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis challenges and opportunities. Yeah, so it's a great pleasure to be here to address this audience. I've, I've sat in those aisles a lot of times, and it's nice to, to be part of this every time I come. Um, uh, um, it feels like a power trip to be the obstacle between you and your lunch. And <laughs> so we'll try to get this done in a timely manner. I'm told there's an eject button at the podium. All right. Okay. So I just want to thank the organizers um, you know, um, for, for, for inviting me to do this talk. Um, the approach I've taken here is to really utilize very challenging cases in the clinic as, and to provoke themes for discussion around PrEP, and I hope that that will be a useful and practical approach um, for, for the audience. Um, I got these cases by asking a lot of my colleagues about some of the vexing PrEP cases they have, so I'm sure these may be scenarios that you can um, relate to as well. So here are my disclosures. And these are the learning objectives. So we really, um, you know, it's been, what, six years since um, uh, tenofovir emptycitabine was approved for PrEP, and there's been a lot of flurry of activity with engaging at-risk populations uh, to benefit from this HIV prevention modality. And so this would be an opportunity for us to see how well we're doing, what the current gaps and challenges are, and what opportunities that currently exist. I'll talk a little bit about the gender differences around PrEP efficacy and mention a few things we learned um, during the recent CROI conference, and also, you know, provoke you a little bit around, you know, the use of post-exposure prophylaxis in patients with PrEP, and I think I'll end with a very illustrative case of a seroconversion while on PrEP to, again, to stimulate discussion around that. So you're going to participate in this talk, and so the first case is a 19-year-old African-American man who has sex with men who comes to your um, clinic to discuss pre-exposure prophylaxis, which he'd heard about from a friend at a bar. He has just begun a new relationship, and while he has not had anal intercourse, he thinks that he and his partner will become intimate pretty soon. He relates that his partner has HIV infection, but is on treatment and told him that he has an undetectable viral load. During this visit, you screen him as you would do during a PrEP intake visit for hepatitis B and other sexually transmitted infections, and a rapid um, HIV test is negative. So here are your options. Okay, we'll go back. Great. So, would you want to initiate daily prep now? You want to make sure he has drug on board and is prepared for his sexual debut um, so that he can you know, achieve good levels on time? Would you consider discussing on-demand prep with him, um, you know, the pericoital uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis? Would you defer, as he's not currently engaging in sexual intercourse, discuss PEP? and in initiate PrEP after his anal sexual debut? 
would you just say, well, you know, you're at low risk of acquiring HIV. We've talked about uh, um, condomless sex between uh, partners where the infected partner is undetectable, or would you just say, you know, risk is low, just use condoms and no prep in the discussion? What would you do? Great, so it looks like most of the audience will initiate prep now. I think through the discussion, well, I'll try to highlight some things that will help us frame this question and answer it better. So I think all, all of us are aware of the CDC data that suggests the disproportionate um, incidence of HIV among um, minority individuals and also minority uh, men who have sex with men. I think um, looking at this through uh, an HIV prevention lens, I think there's no better data than looking at the individuals who are acquiring HIV infection to understand who we need to target for HIV prevention modalities. And I think I learned something from, from Croy where Don Smith was talking about um, the, the efforts we're putting in to engage at-risk individuals on PrEP. And she, she actually showed very elegant data that suggested that if we reach minority MSM at the same rate at which we're reading white MSM, we still do not impact the ep epidemic um, as well among those groups. So that disproportionate um, in incidence of HIV requires a disproportionate effort in those risk groups to balance out the, the incidence in, um, in these risk groups. So I think this is very useful data. And, um, um, there's many reasons for, for this occurring. So we all know this data as well, and I think that this is just really um, stratifying the, the, um, the country according to different states and their risk, um, where their risk of individuals acquiring HIV, a lifetime risk of individuals acquiring HIV. And I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the states we're from, the Northeast, are within the high, highest risk groups um, compared to, to other states in New York and New Jersey. And I think that you're gonna hear this over and over again, that there's also a disproportionate incidence in the southern states. And on Unfortunately, this is always matched by um, you know, PrEP activity in those locations. We also know this data, which um, shows us among um, young men who have sex with men, minority young men who have sex with men, that it's also not just uh, um, uh, alarming numbers, but a rising incidence among these um, rich groups, primarily occurring around men who have sex with men. And um, these, this is a unique group that, in many cases, has not really been engaged in PrEP, and I think should definitely be the focus of um, um, a lot of our implementation efforts. So thinking about some of the reasons why minority um, young men who have sex with men are disproportionately at risk for HIV, I think these are themes that we all very well know about. I'm not going to go into each and every one of them. But in our prep cohorts at Yale New Haven Hospital, we've t we do structured interviews around substance use profiles and patterns of use among our patients. And we see that there are very, very high rates of alcohol use and unhealthy alcohol use, and lots of all substance um, use as well. And we know the link between some of these substance um, use and um, HIV risk behaviors. And so understanding some of these be really important. We know among um, 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 HIV infected minority men who have sex with men that there's also limited awareness of HIV infection. Current estimates are that up to one in five are unaware of their infection. And you can imagine how that feels um, um, HIV transmission. There's been groups at Yale and other places who have done work on understanding how you know, social stigma, feelings of rejection of isolation impact in individuals' willingness to disclose their 
their status to their sexual partners, and also how that, that feeds into um, you know, sexual relationships and HIV risk. We know that in minority, among minority men with sex with men, that there's higher HIV prevalence among those sexual networks. So I think understanding um, some of these issues that contribute to the disproportionate incidence in young uh, men with sex with men would uh, provide us information as to how we can start to, to address some of these, to, to uh, address that uh, disproportionality in incidence. Um, some of these are easily modifiable. Some of them need a lot of innovative ways of thinking and approaches, but we have to recognize that there's, it's not just one reason and why um, we're seeing this disproportionate HIV incidence in this group. And so there can be no one strategy, but more of a comprehensive approach, including um, reaching these individuals for PrEP. I think that um, um, some really interesting explanations have come up um, um, with um, reviewing the literature. Um, we know that um, black MSM don't necessarily engage in, in more um, risky sexual behavior compared to the white counterparts. In fact, some studies suggest they may have fewer number of sexual partners, but the sexual networks are much more limited than, uh, than um, 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 MSM who are non-minority. And we know that um, thinking about the transmission cycle, which I think, for example, has been elegantly described in South Africa, where younger women are infected by older men and then the young women infect their partners, I think trying to understand the transmission cycles of HIV in our communities would allow us to start to address uh, some of this. Um, higher rates of STIs, um, um, engagement with the healthcare system, there's a lot of that. There's been a lot of work published around sexual concurrency, which means um, individuals having same partnerships at the same, uh, at the same time or overlapping partnerships, and this has been associated with the HIV risk and higher, um, appears to be higher among black MSM, again, reflecting um, the limited sexual network. And I think that um, studies have also shown that within these minority groups that um, the, the partners tend to be older, uh, men who have um, HIV infection and of the same race, and that fuels the transmission cycle. Um, we've talked about you know, um, social isolation and stigma. So, so the, these are a few of the meaningful explanations for why this is occurring, and I think that we need to understand this even the context of HIV prevention. So I think it's been, uh, there's been a lot of activity around engaging people in PrEP. We had the CDC numbers that suggest about 1.2 million individuals in the US would meet indications for PrEP, including one in four men who have sex with men, one in five injection drug users, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, but cohorts that are now reporting um, individuals engaged in PrEP in their settings are starting to see disparities in the reach of, of um, different um, HIV risk groups. So this is data by Ken Mayer from Fenway, and he looked at about 5,000, you know, almost 6,000 patients who are HIV uninfected who had a reason to be screened for erectile STI, which would be a surrogate marker for, for HIV risk behavior. And the good news is that over um, a period of time, um, up to um, 2000 and I can barely, 2012 to 12, 2016, um, you can see that there's an increase in the engagement of some of these risk groups in, in um, Prep, uh, in PrEP, so definitely you see the bars going higher when you compare the percentage of these individuals screened for erectile STI and how many are um, engaged on PrEP uh, as uptake. But you start to see that the disparities between you know, minority 
um, individuals. So, you know, the black and blue are, are much le um, lower than, than the white and Hispanic, and that's a significant p-value. You also see that there are differences also in engagement of people by, you know, stratified by their age. So younger people less than age 25, 25, 34, 35, 44, et cetera. You see that um, younger individuals age less than 25, again, which should be, I, sh I showed you the slides on incidents, which should really be the focus of HIV prevention efforts. They're underrepresented in our clinics. So it's pretty clear as we celebrate gains in the number of you know, PrEP enrollments we have in our clinics that there's so much more, more work to be done to reach minorities and, and younger individuals. I think um, another slide I didn't show here from Ken Mayer was also that there was low rates of, of enrollment of um, heterosexual women. And I think that while the focus has appropriately been on uh, men who have sex with men, we need to remember that it shouldn't be at the neglect of, of other HIV risk groups. Yeah, so, you know, the overall nationwide numbers um, have been um, really dismal. And this is um, a study that's really just showing that an estimate of the PrEP coverage by U.S. region and stratified by ethnicity and race over 2015-2016. Uh, um, and you can clearly see that there's also regional differences in the number of people who are actually getting uh, PrEP prescriptions. And as you can see, the lowest numbers, again, are, are in the south. And that, again, shows that in, in, many, in some parts of the United States that we're not um, doing as, as, as good a job with engaging individuals on PrEP. The overall numbers are also um, not, um, not great. 1% um, of black individuals, 3% 3, 3 of Hispanics who would engage in risk behaviors, and 14% of white individuals were estimated at that time to be receiving PrEP. So there's a big gap between um, those who are on PrEP and, and those who meet indications for PrEP. So um, here's a slide that I think is also a very powerful representation, which I think is a very clever way of mapping um, both the individuals who are on PrEP and what is considered to be the need for PrEP in these settings. So they did very elegant geospatial mapping, looking at um, um, the number of people who estimated number of people who would be um, having uh, HIV infection in these places. And they described um, those who were actively on PrEP as people who had gotten a prescription for PrEP, so a 30-day supply and at least had gotten one day of PrEP. So using HIV incidence as a surrogate for individuals who are at risk within you know, a community, they, they came up with what they call a, a PrEP-to-need ratio. Um, for, for these states. So the lower the ratio, the less people that are engaged in respect to people who are coming with HIV infection. So um, again, this is a map where they're comparing uh, that are ratios. So um, it's hard to say what's good and what's bad. Um, but you can see that certainly um, in certain states, in, you know, southern states in red are having far less um, um, need to, to active prescription ratios, which is very, very concerning. There's another way to, to look at this, and I thought that this was a very, very smart way of doing it. And so what this group did was, um, this was Kevin Weiss, um, what this group did was they tried to um, get the publicly listed PrEP providers within certain states and regions within the country, and they mapped that to the distance that individuals who would meet um, indications for PrEP would have to drive to those locations where care is provided. So this is really looking at driving distance from where an individual at risk lives to where the nearest PrEP provider is. And they, they describe PrEP deserts as where individuals have to travel more than an hour to access a, a clinic where a PrEP is provided, which is very interesting. So in areas in red, it means that they have more than a 30-minute drive time for, from the nearest PrEP provider 
and uh, maroon or so is where you have even greater than an hour drive time. And I think it's very interesting that it looks like a lot of the places are in the you know western half of the country, which is interesting, and again, some pockets in the south as well. Um, what this map doesn't tell us is also the provider density. So living within 15, min 15 minutes or so, which is considered optimal of a, of a prep provider, doesn't necessarily mean that they have the capacity to handle the volume or that they're doing a good job, but at least it tells us that, you know, that sometimes you know, access to services can be a problem. And they found that a lot of these areas are in the so-called micropolitan areas, so not the really big cities, but sometimes the small urban cities where there's almost no PrEP providers. So when we think about engaging individuals for PrEP, you can start to see that these are um, some of the challenges that are faced. Yeah. So um, I thought to share some data from, from here from um, New York. Um, um, this was uh, uh, Preeti who presented um, around um, an, a novel PrEP navigation uh, model to engage individuals in PrEP. I think that you know, most of us who do PrEP recognize that there's a role for an individual called a PrEP navigator who is able to you know, really play that role of linking individuals who are at risk to prevention services. And m many of us think that that's a very important role that, uh, that may increase uptake of PrEP. And that's exactly what this study showed. So this was a study at what, 13 sexual health clinics within New York City. Um, and they described the cascade of care with the intervention being a PrEP navigator. So of all the um, who they called priority populations for PrEP, so these are people who were on PrEP, who had interest in PrEP, people who had a recent sexually transmitted infections or history of HIV risk behaviors like sharing needles, they found that the uptake of uh, PrEP navigation was very high. So about 62% of individuals received some form of PrEP navigation um, um, to, to link them to a care center. But the, 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 the end story here is that if you go down the cascade to the number of individuals who are on PrEP, it really was only about 20% of the individuals who were um, received PrEP navigation and were found to be eligible for PrEP who eventually received PrEP. We've used the cascade model to, to, to look at HIV, and I think um, the, um, the second to last speaker will be talking about the HIV cascade, but we recognize that there are also limitations with this um, kind of approach, you know, people who are haven't yet met a PrEP provider are, are not included individuals on PrEP. People, um, we've talked about seasons of risk where individuals' risk profile changes over time. So they may be on PrEP and you know, cohorts have described people re you know, disengaging and re-engaging in care. So sometimes capturing that flux in some of these models can be challenging. But I think overall it's still very, very concerning that even though um, this was a wonderful tool to link people to care, that it didn't always translate. So if I may suggest that um, you know, one idea I have is that you know we need to do a prep navigation follow-through and so that individuals who are referred to clinics maybe we have to think about mechanisms to ensure that those individuals actually access care and find some way to, to extend the role of these prep navigators because there's clearly drop-offs between when individuals are referred and did they actually um, get to a, to a facility be assessed and be placed on prep and so there's so much more to be done along that cascade but it's a good step in the right direction. So beyond initiating PrEP, uh, we've talked about you know, the challenges with, you know, um, that people are reporting and very ingenious ways people are assessing what the, the barriers to more robustly engaging individuals at risk on PrEP. 
are that you know, the people are reporting very high discontinuation rates by individuals um, enrolled in PrEP, and we don't always fully understand why this occurs. And so this is um, one study I just wanted to highlight that shows the discontinuation rates around the cohort. You know, the average discontinuation rate across many cohorts is typically around 30, 40%. We've seen this in African studies. We've seen this also cohorts here in, in the United States. And you know, discontinuation of PrEP is not without clinical consequence. You know, many of these individuals who, who discontinue PrEP Remember that people who are PrEP eligible are engaging in HIV risk behaviors, and so individuals who drop off, you know, these um, uh, prep, uh, prep programs can suffer adverse consequences, including acquiring HIV. So, on your right-hand side is a good uh, figure that shows in blue when certain, you know, the, a group of people who seroconverted were on PrEP and then they discontinued PrEP, and the red triangle shows when they acquired HIV. So it's pretty clear that you know, the top three were people who had HIV at screening before they initiated PrEP, so you will detect some cases. But on the other hand, if you had people who dropped off um, on PrEP and unfortunately acquired HIV infection. So this is a bit sobering that you know, um, we need to try to, to work harder to, to keep people, you know, to maintain people on PrEP. And trying to think about what are the reasons why people discontinue PrEP, I think this was a, a great way to stratify by insurance status. Um, you know, private insurance, Medicaid, I think, um, you know, cohorts have also shown that um, individuals with private insurance and thinking about just co-pays and deductibles, you've mentioned things like that in the past, sometimes can be a barrier to people remaining on PrEP. And so understanding some of these barriers are critically important. So um, this is a great um, cartoon that shows, you know, uh, what should really be a comprehensive approach to HIV prevention among men who have sex with men. And there are certain things that feed in epidemiologically into, into this um, high rates of HIV, um, including, you know, high rates of HIV within sexual cohorts, low rates of HIV testing so that people are unaware. There's social stigma. There's, you know, structural barriers to individuals accessing care, remaining on care. But you, you can see that we need to have a much more comprehensive approach. There has to be a lot of stakeholders, you know, patients, the medical community, all hands have to be on deck to be able to address the, the gaps in um, HIV treatment, testing, and prevention for men who have sex with men with the ultimate goal of bending that curve and getting down um, HIV um, infections among, among these vulnerable individuals to as low as possible. Now, you know, we've always said, you know, the incidence of HIV is too high, we need to bend this down, and I think one, uh, we've been excited about pre-exposure prophylaxis and start, um, starting to wonder if it's having a true real-world impact on HIV um, incidence. I think, um, we saw a slide, I think, from um, Australia. This is a slide from San Francisco. Um, you know, some people might argue these are some of the, <laughs> the best examples of how well we're doing, um, fortunately or unfortunately. So this may not necessarily mirror what's happening in our own locales or in our cities. But you see that San Francisco is very proud to report of, you know, 51% reduction in new HIV cases among the men who sex with men. I will tell you that in certain areas, the coverage rates for PrEP are as high as 50%. So they've engaged more than half of their men who have sex with men who are at risk for HIV in PrEP. So these are probably the best numbers, but this is a good um, way to showcase you know, the public health significance of some of the work we are all doing in, in engaging HIV negative people who engage in risk behaviors on pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I think that this is a, um, a very satisfactory side to look at. So, you know, the next thing is, you know, we've talked about, you know, who needs to be on PrEP, the barriers to getting people on PrEP, but then it's nice to have targets and goals. So the question is, how much coverage of PrEP do we need to have 
to impact the number of new cases of HIV infection, okay? And we remember that, um, you, know, uh, you know, one approach could be treatment as prevention, training individuals who are HIV infected, knocking down the community viral load, and then you can decrease transmission in the community. So, um, you know, this modeling study assumed that 40% of individuals in the United States who engage in risk behavior will be on PrEP. And so in orange there, you can see the decrease in the number of cases. So you can, for example, if you had 40 percent PrEP coverage among high-risk populations, you have a 48,000 um, overall decrease in, in new infections by, by 2020. But if you couple that with other interventions, including expanding um, HIV testing and treatment, you can see that you can have much more significant impact. And if you think about it, if we are able to do much better with the 1990-90 or 95-95-95 uh, cascade for HIV infection, then we would need so much less PrEP for individuals so that, you know, success with one intervention may, may mitigate the need for us to expand PrEP. So I think it's interesting to see how, you know, these um, different prevention modalities can interface, and I think that combined together can make a serious impact on the epidemic. So we need to work at both ends, those at risk and also those who are HIV infected to achieve maximal impact. We talked about um, uh, different options for our patients, um, including on-demand uh, PrEP. And this is just to show that, you know, we all know that there was an 86% relative risk reduction when um, uh, men with sex with men at two big sites used pericoital um, tenofovir and empricitabine. Um, I think some of the, con the advantages to this approach is that we know that um, this probably could lead to improved adherence, long, long less long-term drug toxicity, and it's quite convenient for individuals. But many of us are concerned about what the drug levels are with such short-term exposure. People have unplanned sexual encounters, and this can blunt the efficacy of PrEP. Um, if you're able to <laughs> draw a PrEP diary, of you know, people's sexual acts and try to get a log of how many sexual encounters are planned or unplanned. And this is an example of what the weekly sex diary would be. Um, I think the authors of this study showed that about you know, 48% uh, of individuals at some point engaged in an unplanned encounter that will put them at risk for HIV. So that um, you know, uh, the concerns around, um, um, yep, so the concerns around that are quite significant for unplanned sexual events. Um, we know that uh, so-called phenomenon of chemsex is important. So the ANS hypergay study looked, did hair analysis of their patients, and they found extremely high rates. 87% of individuals had at least one form of drug detected. And so this is, again, to draw attention to the fact that substances used is common among um, these individuals at risk for, H, um, for HIV. The last um, slide before we move to the next case is just to mention that there have been several demonstration projects in young uh, men who have sex with men in the United States, age 15 to 17. We all know that um, tenofovir and prisidabine is not approved for that group, but just to highlight that there are demonstration projects among these groups. I think uh, it's exciting that you can engage young people in PrEP, um, including adolescents or older adolescents, but they've shown very low rates of PrEP maintenance, where there's high drop-off rates for these young individuals when they're engaged in care, and that results in seroconversions and very high rates of sexual transmitted infections, which suggests they're not adhering to other modalities, including um, condom prevention. So engaging this group is possible, but can be challenging. The other two cases are much shorter. So this is a 55-year-old man who is sex with men who has secondary hypogonadism and osteopenia. He has a T-score of minus 2.0, so osteopenic range. No history of fractures. Who comes for PrEP evaluation? A high-risk individual who has unprotected receptive anion, of course, with 25 to 30 partners a month. And lab shows he's immune to hepatitis B. Creatinine clearance is about 70. 
So, what would you do? So this is an individual who has osteopenia, um, a 55-year-old male, and a creatinine clearance of 70. So would you want to, because you're concerned about the renal function and possible decline, do you want to consider enrolling them in a TAF versus TDF trial? Do you want to avoid tenofovir and pristadibine and just recommend other options or, or future options for PrEP? Do you want to continue them on, on initiate them on, on tenofovir and pristadibine and check the bone mineral density? Do we know when to screen for that? Do we use calcium and vitamin D to mitigate the effects of tenofovir on bone? Or do we use Moravirac off-label? Music. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, so most people said enroll in a clinical trial, TAF versus TDF. 10% um, would avoid TDF altogether, and actually 28% would want to use calcium and vitamin D. So great, so let's try and address some of those um, um, questions. I think we mentioned the DISCOVER study where um, they're looking at TAF versus FT and TDF um, with um, entricitabine for PrEP. That study is completely enrolled, so it's not open to new enrollments. Um, there's greater than 6,000 individuals enrolled in that study, and um, the endpoints are looking at the safety and, and efficacy of these two different strategies for PrEP, and I think we'll be learning about those studies in the future. That's exciting. Um, for us. Um, I think it's pretty clear that even in HIV-negative persons, that if they're exposed to entricitabine and tenofovir, that there's significant declines both in hip and spine bone mineral density, usually about the range of 1-2% in general, so not much. And if you think about it, many of these individuals are healthy individuals where you would, this wouldn't ordinarily be a concern, but it can be a challenge in individuals who have already pre-existing osteopenia. In the TDF2 study for pre-exposure prophylaxis, they found that if you screen everyone at baseline, that about 7% may have abnormal bone mineral density tests to begin with, so it's not uncommon that individuals may have um, um, osteopenia. Um, I wanted to share with you that there's no real clear guidance on what to do for uh, tenofovir. We recognize that you know there's a huge dip usually within the first 48 weeks of exposure, then a little bit of a tapering off on the bone mineral, bone mineral density loss over time, and that really we've resorted to tools that are used in uh, non-HIV infected individuals and extrapolated them to HIV infected patients. But a useful tool which I wanted to share with you is a FRAC score, which looks at the, um, the, the risk of having a fracture within 10 years. And so that individuals who are less than 40 maybe don't need screening, but people who are between 40 and 50 who have a high FRAC score DEXA scan and, and others can get a DEXA scan as well. A study shows that um, calcium and vitamin D may actually mitigate the um, effects of tenofovir on bone. Um, this was one of the studies that showed that, and they found that it, it, it didn't um, entirely um, eliminate the effects of tenofovir on bone, but at least it mitigated the effect, and there was a 50% less bone renal density loss among these individuals. So that might be a meaningful strategy to employ. Um, I know we've talked about PrEP options in the pipeline, and I think Raj Gandhi will mention a few as well, but just know there's a lot of activity in pre, you know, animal preclinical studies on products that will be useful for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Let's do the last slide. So this is a 25-year-old, uh, last case, 25-year-old woman who is a sex worker who presents to your clinic 
with a high-risk sexual exposure to an HIV-positive male. OBGYN prescribes PrEP two weeks ago, but she reports missing about three doses of her pills each week. Her male partner is reluctant to share information about his HIV status. And on, when you examine her, she has an active um, and genital herpes outbreak. So what do you do here? Do you continue um, tenofovir and to being PrEP, reassure that her risk of acquiring HIV is low? Do you add dolutegravir to TDFTC for 28 days as PEP, given that she's been relatively poorly adherent to PrEP? Um, and then resume PrEP afterwards? Do you, um, because you're uncertain about the HIV partner's treatment experience where he could harbor a resistant virus, should you use you know, four drug therapy? or just you know, put on a cyclovir for genital herpes and has activity against HIV, what would you do? So most people would add dollar ticket or prep, and that's what I would do as well. So you're justified in your approach because we know studies have shown that both the time to achieving protective levels among females and even the probability of achieving protective levels even with perfect adherence is a challenge in women. And we learned on Croy that vaginal dysbiosis, um, you know, certainly a contributor to this, but doesn't explain the entire picture. Um, you know, there's always concern around uh, pregnancy for women and birth outcomes on PrEP. So in case of a woman who has um, childbearing potential, but, you know, studies have really not shown um, that much difference when you're looking at um, TDF alone or TDF-FTC on birth outcomes, including pregnancy loss or preterm birth. So, you know, a common question is, can we use PrEP in pregnant women? And, you know, I think that, you know, this kind of data is reassuring that we can at least consider using them off-label. So I might I suggest that individuals who have suboptimal use of PrEP, um, who are exposed to HIV-positive partners in, in that setting, that they may be a role for PEP to abort infections. So this is the last slide I will show, which was a seroconversion on PrEP, which was a manual sex with men who was, you know, very active, 50 partners in three months, engaged in a lot of unprotected um, receptive anal intercourse and had multiple um, sexually transmitted infections who acquired HIV about the eighth month of being on PrEP in the setting of having adequate um, drug levels. So this raised a lot of questions around you know, breakthrough infections on PrEP, especially because he did not have viral resistance to tenofovir and pristidobine, that you know, what's the role of viral inoculum multiple partners in repeated exposure to HIV? Is there, uh, what's the contribution of mucosal injury even from sexually transmitted infections? Atypical seroconversion partners, uh, patterns have been described, especially using viral loads in people who are on tenofovir and pristidobine that you may not detect it, but antibodies could be positive, so a pattern that's unusual, and so how do we screen for that in these individuals? Um, obviously, we all know that we have to work hard to, um, to uh, prevent STDs among our patients, which increases uptake of HIV, and I would like to encourage us that where individuals um, are suboptimally adherent with PrEP, that there is a role for PEP. And so this is just to show that um, if you look at um, viremic individuals, this is a very good cross slide from Kings County in Seattle, where they looked at viremic manual sex with men to see what is the pre-existing resistance to tenofovir and pristidobine, and they found rates about five to six percent. So that even on current prep therapies, um, in, um, even though the risk is low, that there's some community level prevalence of um, virus that's resistant to the only FDA-approved option we have. All right, I'll stop there and get questions.
Thank you. Um, so I have a few questions, um, one which um, might occupy most of the question period. Um, so it doesn't look like there's any PrEP data um, that was, has been collected that has included transgender populations in the demographics. Do you have any information or any studies that would um, inform us about the use of PrEP in transgender populations? Yeah. So I think that's a, a very good question. I think that it's been clear. Um, a lot of the studies that have enrolled uh, men who have sex with men have also included um, eligibility uh, inclusion criteria for uh, transgender um, uh, men who have sex uh, with men. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think we know in most of these studies that the enrollment of that specific population has been low. And I think that it's pretty much um, well recognized in the field that that's uh, definitely a group that hasn't been uh, significantly engaged in, in uh, programs. And so that's um, an, an, a gap that we have in research around that uh, risk group. Okay. Um, regarding bone density loss while on PrEP, you may have addressed this, although there is the calcium supplementation study, is there a recommendation to suggest its use? Yeah, there's none that I know of. Um, I think that even uh, the, the mechanisms by, by which um, tenofovirin impacts bone marrow density are not entirely fully understood, but I think that you know, studies have shown um, you know, calcium, vitamin D, and in certain cases, uh, bisphosphonates may be, may be useful in those settings. Um, I'm unaware of any guidelines um, for, for this, especially in HIV-negative individuals who are in PrEP. There's just no data on it. Okay. Are there any drug interactions issues to be concerned about in individuals who are on PrEP? Any specific drug interaction? Um, treatments of sexually transmitted infections or other things that might um, be comorbid or coexistent sort of things while people are on PrEP? Um, not, not really um, for TAF FTC. I mean, um, usually it's the, the um, I think rifampicin may have some um, interaction um, with, with, uh, with TAF, um, but I'm not aware of any major drug interactions that preclude that. Okay. Could you describe something about this study that is comparing TAF and, um, and TDF in, trip and, in um, patients who are getting PrEP? Yeah, so um, I think that there's definitely preclinical, you know, animal data suggesting that TAF can pre prevent uh, rectal acquisition of HIV. I think um, at CROI, the recent CROI conference, we also learned that, you know, it, you can have the same protective effect when you, um, for um, non-human primates when they're exposed um, uh, vaginally to, to HIV as well. So we have the robust data. I think some of the initial concerns around TAF were about tissue levels, particularly levels that are achievable in the rectum, um, but the, you know, based on the the, the models that I've shown, um, you know, quite robust HIV prevention, and you know, some people have suggested that um, the tissue levels may not necessarily be the way to compare how TDF works for PrEP versus TAF, as TAF may prevent HIV in other ways that are not measured by some of those pharmacokinetic parameters. But I think there was enough equipoise uh, to go on with the Gilead study, which is the Discover study, which is currently ongoing, it's a multinational study, over you know, 90 sites across the globe, and I think we'll learn very soon as to um, you know, if TAF is holding up versus TDF. 
So when is it anticipated that there'll be results from that study? Is it, um, it's fully enrolled, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they're pretty much coming up on their uh, week 48 data, probably sometime mid-year-ish. So I'm hoping, you know, any time after that, we may start to get some early data on, on the TAF versus TDF study. Okay. Have you been asked if PrEP should be administered if you're only engaged in oral sex? <laughs> um, I think in, in the field is generally recognized that um, we, we do not think that oral intercourse is definitely a way in which people can acquire HIV, at least for, H in, for adults. Um, you know, there's some suggesting that um, oral intercourse with ejaculation may carry higher risk than without ejaculation. Um, but I think in general, um, it's, you know, we think that the risk is lower in oral intercourse. Um, uh, uh, you know, the degree to which that's a surrogate marker for other forms of intercourse or uh, behaviors that put individual for risk, I think that's um, um, a discussion that you have to have with the individual patient around the range of their sexual practices. But um, I do have, you know, patients, young patients who only engage in oral intercourse, and for some of those, I, I share the decision with them around initiation of PrEP or not. So in resource, um developed, underdeveloped countries, circumcision has been um, used very widely as an HIV risk reduction strategy. Is there any programs or is there any attention to that in this environment? Do people actually address the need for circumcision among young men who are sexually active or uncircumcised? Is there any information about that? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, I think we all agree that there's evidence that um, circumcision definitely does uh, decrease the risk of HIV acquisition in males. Um, I think that um, some of the studies showed maybe potential and initial increase in HIV incidence when, you know, the foreskin hasn't healed and people engage in intercourse. So there's a period of vulnerability um, immediately post-circumcision. Um, I think it's caught on in Africa where there's limited access to some prevention modalities and it's a whole different picture here where we now have PrEP, for example, to protect individuals from um, um, acquiring HIV. So some of the appetite for those kinds of um, interventions may not be as robust here. Has PrEP uh, gained traction among men of sex with men in developing countries? In developing countries, uh, developed, uh, <laughs> developed, uh, underdeveloped countries. Yeah. Prep. So, so I happen to to work in sub-Saharan Africa, in Rwanda and Liberia, where I do some global health work, and I can tell you that um, you know there's certain countries that have done well. I think you know Kenya, South Africa have you know started to initiate robust uh, prep programs. I think in many of those communities, it's kind of a little bit challenging to engage uh, the men who are sex with men community for you know a variety of reasons which we're aware of, including criminalization in certain countries around even just being gay, like uh, many of us know. And so that's a huge uh, barrier to individuals disclosing their status, talk less of um, 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 benefiting from HIV prevention uh, um, approaches. So there's a lot of work to be done um, with regards to that. Remember that in Sub-Saharan Africa, the driver of HIV transmission is really heterosexual um, intercourse. And I think that, um, you know, that, that is, you know, maybe, maybe rightly so the priority group for, for them for PrEP, unlike our iris profile here. Right. So that would mean the priority group would be young men and young women who are heterosexual? Correct. 
Yeah, and so some of the demonstration projects, particularly in South Africa, have really focused on empowering young women where there's a discordance between um, the HIV incidents among young women and their young male counterparts. And I think that we all need to, to adjust the strategies to the highest risk groups in our communities. Right. Okay. Um, are there any other questions? Okay. Do you have any questions for the audience about PrEP? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you.